Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast, breaking down politics as we know it and removing all the bullshit. (laughs) Because politics needed a (laughs) rebrand. Welcome back to another week of Girl on the Go of the Podcast, bringing you the best podcast content the podcast world has to offer, right, Sam? I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, I am self-absorbed enough to say yes, absolutely. It is the best podcast content you will ever find. You're here. You've peaked in terms of podcasts. You will find no better. It's all about positive self-talk affirmations we're manifesting yeah 100 we're back and we're better every week all the reality tv shows and the documentary filmmakers are gonna be knocking on our door give it a year give it maybe two. Oh my god i'm just thinking of like the documentary element well that's why our vlogs are coming in so handy right now because we you know are documenting our early stages for our future documentary honestly like i'm just thinking like of all the topics that they're gonna cover like wow you really only eat gummy bears like 90 percent of the time like what are these girls diets and why are they drinking all the time i literally learned today i was today years old that you're not supposed to like leave cooked food out for like multiple hours There's certain holes in my education and they all have to do with anything kitchen related. And let me tell you, that was like glaring. Yeah, we know that about you. We know you're not too versed in the kitchen and that's fine. I really, it's bad. I was thinking about this like for my next apartment. I realized like live on my own for the first time, which is wild. One of the apartments that I really like doesn't even have a stove. It has a stove top. (laughs) And I was like, man, well. Ooh. You're like, I don't even need a kitchen. Like, just let's cut off that portion of the rent. I'll get like a nice little studio, no kitchen. I'd rather have a nice bathroom, bigger closet. I couldn't be more opposite because I literally got an apron for Christmas. An apron in a vacuum. And I was like, okay, thank you. I actually was super excited about it. But I also was like, I need to go to Vegas. I need to like do something so that this wifey vibe can get wiped away from me immediately. <laughs> Maybe that's like the the dating scenario you'd be like yeah like see i got a vacuum and they're gonna be like wow she cleans i feel like that'll be more like scary for men than to be like oh fuck get me out of here i'm not trying to head to the chapel right now <laughs> i think that's you know my problem with dating men just like immediately you know 
marriage material. So they put the blockers on, you know? That's my problem. <laughs> That's what I tell myself. Well, I feel like we've talked a bunch of nonsense. And now we probably should introduce, like, our incredible guest. You do it. <laughs> I always push it on to you. I love making Sam introduce our guest because she gets so nervous. It's so weird. Like, if I could, like, really think about, like, the things that make me nervous, it is really weird and none of it ever makes sense. But apparently this does. Well, honestly, like, it's a good thing. Like, to all our listeners, like, this just shows... We are genuine. We are real. This is all natural. We are not scripted on this show because when shit is scripted, we both take on some speech impediments, some stuttering, some nervous laughter. And the scripted part is not our forte. But at the end of the day, that's great because the podcast is better when it's natural, you know? It's true. We've tried. So our amazing guest we're ecstatic to have on the show is Diane Morales and she is running for New York City mayor. So literally mayor of the Big Apple. I can't believe I said Big Apple. I'm from New York. I love calling it the Big Apple. But this is gonna be a crazy race. And let's just also mention the fact that the Yang Gang is entering this race. So this is about to be a big race. All eyes on it. For multiple reasons, A, because New York City, let's not get stamped startup and New York City needs a new mayor. But also, there are 30-plus candidates right now, and there's also a new ranked choice voting system. Again, Andrew Yang is coming in hot, and so this is a hot race, wouldn't you say? It is absolutely a hot race. It is like a five-flame race if we're like looking at emoji ranking status. And especially like Maddie said, speaking of ranking, ranked choice voting is new for a number of elections in New York City, including the mayoral race. So there is a lot of discussion around that. And of course, it's because it's politics, it's confusing. So if you are a New Yorker, please, please keep listening to the rest of this episode because not only is Diana an amazing candidate that you should get to know, but she also explains how ranked choice voting work so we're super excited to sort of dive in there just another reminder like not take your foot off the gas with your civic engagement because there are elections happening always not just in those big presidential election years so check in in your city and see you know what kind of races are happening this year because they're still they're still going 2021 is a hot year for for new elections so can't wait to dive in with diane about all things new york city and this mayoral race. So without further ado, here's Diane. Well, first of all, thank you both so much for having me on this show. It's very exciting to be here with you all. And I appreciate the opportunity to tell you a little bit more about myself and my campaign. So I am running for, drum roll, for mayor of New York City as the first Afro-Latina candidate in the hopes of actually being the first Black Latina woman mayor of New York City. I, you know, so so my platform is really centered on kind of flipping the script of history and really centering and elevating the voices of communities that have been historically left behind. You know, low-income Black and brown folks, women, single moms, the immigrant community, the LGBTQIA population, just everybody who has historically felt like they're not seen or represented or heard in government and in leadership. And you know, I think both because of who I am personally and of how I, as, because of how I've spent my life in terms of doing work with these co- communities, I think that's really important. And I think it's time for, for folks to have a voice and to have a seat at the table. Absolutely. I mean, sign us up, literally like pull our seats over. We're here for it. But of course, like The role of mayor, there's so many of these different positions. We've had candidates for city council on before as well. We've kind of gone through like the litany of all these different positions and whatnot, but mayor, like big role, especially New York City, which I mean, I'm biased, but like as a New Yorker, like I just think it's the center of the universe. But why, why mayor? Why was that like the one you had your eyes set on? Yeah. So, you know, I mean, the truth of the matter is that I, I never really thought that I would be running for office. So so all of this is, is really, you know, it's really a radical change in my own life. I have worked in community my entire career for over 30 years and really, really focused on, you know, building programs and services that created pathways and opportunities to people to access economic 
stability and, and, you know, attain educational credentials or whatever that, so that they could, people could live in dignity. And I think that, you know, I've never, since I never aspired to run for office, I, I, when I finally allowed myself to think about it, it really was about how do I bring all of my experiences and skills to bear to bring about change for the most, for the largest group of people. And I think there's something about the unique combination of my lived experiences as a first generation, Black Latina, single mother, and also as the executive of large organizations with large budgets that has that have been very successful in improving the lives of people. Th- those two things together, I think it's an executive job. Being the mayor is an executive job. It's not just legislative and it's not just representative, right? You don't, you're not just representing your constituents. You're actually also responsible for like getting things done and executing on things and um, managing budgets and supervising people. And so that felt like the right, the right thing for the combination of experiences and skills that I wanted to, that I'm bringing to the table. And so also, I think I feel like for too long, women and people of color have just been left out of this level of citywide representation and it's our time. Totally. I love that. What are kind of the two main priorities when running? There's also so many things to tackle. So what really are, if you could choose like two of your like main priorities in your candidacy? Yeah. So I think that the first one that I, that comes to mind when, when people ask me that question is, is to divest and reinvest. And really when I say that, and when I've said that historically, it's most been, it's most closely been connected to policing, the defund the police movement. And I think that's true. And I'm happy to unpack that because I was the first mayoral candidate to call for defunding the police. But I think it also means reorienting what we prioritize in the city and in our budgets and having a budget that reflects our values and having our values be reflective of taking care of those among us who are the most vulnerable and kind of like aligning with the idea that the greatness of a city and the greatness of New York really should really and truly should and and can only be measured by the status of our most vulnerable and the recognition that in particular as we come out of 2020 that the people that kind of made it possible for us to survive and kept the city running during that period of time are also largely some of our most vulnerable. And so the need for us to kind of recognize that and to take care of each other as well. Yeah, totally. We will dive in definitely to the criminal justice conversation a little bit later. I do also have questions just about the kind of nature of this mayoral campaign in New York City, because I think we all have a stupid question now. <laughs> Let's get into it. No question is stupid because the city has done a terrible job of actually providing education and information to voters about this. But ranked choice voting too, I, I can definitely speak to this. I remember in the spring going to a training on it. And first of all, only like five other people showed up, which just goes to show like a huge issue that like us here are like trying to solve and like making politics approachable and cool and pink and like people will pay attention to it. But I, everyone was so gung-ho about it. And there are a lot of reasons to be so, and we'll get into sort of how it works, giving the background of ranked choice voting and asking our like stupid questions. So can you explain to your listeners that might not know, most likely don't know what ranked choice voting actually is? All right, so I'll try to do this in the simplest way and not mess it up. So ranked choice voting will be available for municipal positions. So you'll get to list your top five candidates and you get to list them in order of preference. One, two, three, four, five. This is where it gets a little bit complicated and I'm gonna to try to say this very carefully. So let's say there's you know, 10 candidates and you, know, you all vote one through five. The, f- the first candidate, the candidate that gets ranked number one, the least amount of times gets automatically eliminated. And then whoever those people voted for number two, those candidates get that vote. Does that make sense? So let me back up for a second. So everybody votes. And when everybody votes, if there's one candidate who naturally has 51% of being ranked number one, that's done. That's the person that wins, right? But if that doesn't happen, then it's when you start this elimination process. And that elimination process continues until someone gets 51% of the votes. So if you put, if you put, 
Jim, Jimmy Dean first, but you put me second. And Jimmy Dean got the least number of one choice votes, right? Number one vo votes. But you put me second, I get your vote, right? And so that just keeps happening until, so I, your vote then becomes, gets added to like my number ones. But I think the, the cool thing about ranked choice voting is because you get to like rank your top five choices. First of all, it's not polarized. It's not like either this person or that person. And second of all, you get to kind of go, wow, you know what? I really like that person. And that person feels aligned with me and my values. Like they don't have a lot of name recognition. A lot of people aren't talking about them, but that's who I pick, right? And that person could be my number one. And then you could get the career politician that has this sort of establishment and whatever, whatever. And if that's who you want to put for your number two, then you can do that. It kind of like, it's kind of like hedging your bets a little bit. Yeah, I think it's like a really cool and important political lesson too. I think for so long, the culture on voting, it's always like the better of two evils kind of thing. Whereas, you know, with ranked choice voting, I think it's just a more thoughtful way of voting so that, you know, you're not going to find your perfect candidate, but you have to realize that like, okay, so if your top candidate loses, like, let's look at like what this next person can bring to you. I just like the concept of that. It's a sport. It's literally, it feels like it's somewhere between like current voting status feels like a football rivalry and then ranked choice voting feels like sorority rush to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm an advocate for it. I'm a supporter for it. I think that for someone like me who is an outside insurgent, non-traditional, non-establishment, blah, 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 candidate, it actually makes it a little bit more possible for, for me to be seen and heard, right? Because again, it's not this polarized system where people get to pick just one person. And so I, I think it's the right direction for us to be moving in if we want to make democracy really accessible to everybody. And democracy is more than just voting. It's also being able to run for office and having that be something that's available to people. Right now we have these, these code words around viability and electability. And really that's just code for how much money do you have? How much money do your friends have? And how well do people know you? Right. And that's just, when you start, when you start and end with those criteria as like the determinant factors of, of, of candidates, first of all, you dramatically shrink the pool and second of all, you deny those folks who are not part of that pool the, the ability to really access it. And so I think ranked choice voting is, is, the, is a step in the right direction. And there is some data nationwide that shows that it actually increases diversity representation and leadership. That being said, there's a critical education piece that needs to happen. And in New York City, I am not convinced that we have the technology in place yet to actually do that you know, to, to do the ballots and to do the counting and, and all of that. Last I heard, they were going to have every single race on every ballot, which is just like pages and pages and pages and pages. That's not very user friendly. So, I, you know, there's the concept and then there's the like preparedness. And are we really ready to implement this? And are we going to do what we need to do to implement it? I was sitting around knowing my demographic of other like people in their 20s thinking, okay, like no way is anyone going to like understand what this is or learn about it. And no one's talking about it enough. So there definitely needs to be like some more education out there on it because people are going to get to the polls and be so confused or they're just not even going to bother. Well, and just the intimidation factor of that. I mean, I think voters are already, you know, intimidated going into a ballot box sometimes and not knowing what any what everything means. And so this definitely adds another factor to that. It needs to be simplified and easily accessible. That is really the question. The concept is great, but are we ready to implement it? And do we have really the political will to prioritize it, right? Because the thing is, this could potentially end up resulting in a, a different form of disenfranchisement, right? Mm -hmm. And voters' rights it's, it are historically an issue in some communities. So that's, that's my concern. I mean, very interesting topic. I still feel like I have a lot to learn about it, but I'm glad we're talking about it. But moving forward to... Criminal justice reform, which we've, you know, slightly, slightly scratched the surface on today, but there's a big, a big can of worms to open there. So to start in New York, this issue is very much alive and well, and 
we don't all have like a clear picture of what the problems are and where they stem from. So can you kind of share with our listeners some of these problems that have led us to needing this criminal justice reform and and police reform? Sure. So we can start in we can start in history and we can start in education. And I am an educator at heart. So that's where I think it's important for us to start. The reality of it is that our current system is built on and rooted in the history of slavery and slave patrols, and that slave patrols were in fact charged with or or focused on protecting property, the property of the white man, the white slave owners, and that property was the black man. And so it was not about protecting the life or the well-being of the black man. It was about protecting something that belonged to the white man, right? So that's the, that's the sort of basic, basic, like overly simplified foundation. But then, you know, when you, you sort of fast forward to where we are today and you see those roots play out when you see the disproportionality of um, stop and frisk, the disproportionality of broken windows policing. Quick, stupid question break, because broken windows policing may not be known to some. I remember, you know, learning about it in college for a hot second, but Lord knows in one ear out the other. So broken windows policing is actually a decades long focus on policing minor crimes and activities. And so this has actually led to the criminalization and over policing of communities of color and the use of excessive force and otherwise harmless situations against communities of color. So nationwide, only 5% of arrests made in 2018 involved alleged violent crimes. Only 4% of what police spend their time doing overall involves enforcing violent crimes. So meanwhile, the vast majority of arrests are for low-level, nonviolent activities um, and encounters that often escalate to deadly force against black and brown people. So pretty problematic and Sam, like what is stop and frisk? So stop and frisk, answering another stupid question, right? What is that? What does that policy mean? Breaking that down. So stop and frisk is when police temporarily detain and question a pedestrian, so literally someone walking, and pat down outside of their clothing to assess whether they are carrying weapons, which is the quote unquote frisk. The Fourth Amendment requires that before stopping the suspect, police must have a reasonable suspicion, this is where gray areas come in, that a crime has been as being or is about to be committed by the person. Courts have found that some police department's stop-and-frisk practices can be unconstitutional, specifically in violation of the Fourth Amendment. Many courts, including in New York City, have found that the practice also violates the 14th Amendment's promise of equal protection, as Black and Latino people are subject to stops and searches at a higher rate than whites. Studies, including in Chicago, suggest that stop-and-frisk does not effectively reduce crime where it is used. Studies have also shown that the majority of citizens of color view the practice as discriminatory and dehumanizing, leading to the erosion of trust between police and communities of color they serve. So big contributors to this problem of police reform and exactly what Diane is talking about. So I'll pass the mic back to Diane. The disproportionality of who gets incarcerated, the disproportionality of who gets sentenced for how long, the disproportionality of the number of black and brown men that get executed on a you know, on a regular basis for the same crimes. I'm not talking about, you know, a difference or a disparity. I'm talking about everything else being equal. And so that system has perpetuated the disparities and inequities and injustices towards black and brown people in this country. And then I can give you some really personal examples, right? On May 29th, when there was a huge protest at the Barclays Center here in Brooklyn after George Floyd was murdered on video for all of us to see, I have two children. My, my children are 22 and 20, and they decided they wanted to, to go down to the protest. And I was going down to the protest too, but they didn't want to go to the protest with their mother because who wants to go to the protest with their mom? I did. Well, I, you know, my kids are just not as cool as you are. They did not want to hang. They did not want to hang with me at all. I was, I was fine. So I went with some friends and, you know, we sort of like found each other, but we were not together. Right. And I was actually having a mom moment because they'd been fighting the day before and I, they were hanging out and they were standing next to each other. And I was looking at, you know, looking at them from behind. And I remember I was thinking to myself, oh, look at them taking care of each other and hanging out. They would like cats and dogs the day before. And then all of a sudden I saw them like turn and crouch over because they had been pepper sprayed. And they literally had just been standing there. 
And I watched, right? So this is, and, and I should say that this was not the first time that my son had been harmed by police. He's a brown man. He's tall, six feet tall. And so, you know, he's been profiled before on the corner, waiting for his basketball coach to pick him up. Cruiser stops him. Why are you here? What are you doing in this neighborhood? You know, that kind of thing. So I watched as my kids got pepper sprayed and I went to them and I, I helped them out. And, you know, people in those settings are really, really helpful. So they were fine. And then they didn't want to go home. And then we started marching and we were marching together. Cause I was like, at this point I was like, we're, you know, yeah, you're staying with me. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, exactly. And we got kettled. And what was interesting to me about that was that we were with two of my white friends and we got kettled in such a way that my white friends got left on the outside. Okay, another quick stupid question break because what is kettling? Kettling is a form of riot control and kettling occurs when police officers block off streets and push people into confined areas like a city block or a bridge. And so while protest and riot management traditionally focuses on like dispersing crowds, kettling is actually all about containment. So when you're kettled, you have no access to like bathrooms, you have very little space, like think of like a mosh pit at a concert, like my literal worst fear. And so you have no place to go. So critically, like no one gets to leave until the police say so. So basically it's like a pressure cooker without a, a valve. And in theory, so just thinking about this broad strokes, the technique allows police officers to slowly release small groups out of the kettle as a way of quote unquote diffusing tension. However, in practice, it's deeply problematic. So in a sense, you are interfering with people's rights and the ability to do what the First Amendment protects, which is to go out in the street and tell the government what you think, to protest and use your First Amendment rights. So while this is a technique that the police use, it's deeply problematic. So we will, of course, continue discussing this. So back to Diane. And in that moment, I turned, I, like I saw what was happening, that the officers were in riot gear and they had their batons. And I turned to grab my daughter and I grabbed her. And then by the time I turned back around to grab my son, who was just a few feet ahead of me, there was an officer assaulting him. And we hadn't been, we, we, we were literally just walking, you know, marching. And I got really lucky, you know, I, I don't know, lucky, whatever. In that moment, mama bear instincts, I came up behind my son. I put my arm around his chest and pulled him back to me. And I could feel his heartbeat racing against my hand. And time both sped up and slowed down. But I remember making eye contact with the officer. And all I could think to say was, he is mine. But something in that moment broke. And the officer backed off and he made an opening and he let us out. I can't think of anything more powerful as testimony to why, you know, why the system needs to be fundamentally transformed, right? When two innocent young adults can be attacked while exercising their civil rights. And, you know, we've seen it, we've seen it happening all over the country. And we saw it happen the other night, you know, we saw it happen on MLK day and we saw it happen against union workers who were protesting. We saw it happen, you know, here in New York city two nights ago when someone who was under the influence of substances, right? The system is not actually intended to protect us all. Here's the other thing. When you think about, when you look at the statistics and numbers of, of 911 calls, very few of those calls are actually about crimes in progress. Most often those calls are about issues of homelessness or mental health or substance abuse. And so who wants a man with a gun to respond to their brother who is having a mental health crisis? So I've called for the creation of, of a community first responders department that would essentially unburden police officers from having to respond to things that they're not trained for and they didn't sign up for. And that community first responders department would be staffed with people who are trained and skilled at de-escalation and intervention and connecting people to the services that they need. You know, when you think about public safety, I guarantee if you close your eyes, you're not thinking about or envisioning police officers. And so we have to really reclaim the definition of public safety in black and brown communities in particular, because those are the communities that are most harmed. And those are the communities that actually feel the least safe when there's police in their presence. And so what that means is, you know, programs and services and recreation and options and mental health supports. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, I like that explanation. And I think 
it just it's a comprehensive issue and we have to see it that way and i think after the summer with like the calls for defunding the police i mean obviously that got immediately like politicized you kind of touched on on it earlier and i thought you said it very well but can you also kind of explain the defunding the police like movement and like that statement in general i mean some people agree with the actual practice of it but have like criticized the maybe just slogan of it right the language right yeah the language that's a little bit of propaganda too but I mean, really what it means is, as I said, is to divest and reinvest, right? And so if you take it back to the conversation about or the idea of envisioning a safe society or, a, a, you know, a public public safety in a different way, it means investing in our schools. It means investing in job training. It means investing in housing for people. It means investing in mental health services. You know, if people have jobs, if they have a place to live, if they have food on the table, they are much less likely to engage in any behavior that makes anyone else less safe because they're safe. And so it's really about prioritizing first, and this goes back to my comment about a budget being a reflection of values, prioritizing first the things that we think people need the most. And the reality of it is that, you know, by the time public safety becomes an issue, it's long after people are economically insecure, housing insecure, food insecure, you know, desperate times lead to desperate measures, right? Like people do things and, and like right now we're living through this period of time and there's a lot of focus on like the increasing crime rates, the increase. Well, yeah. I mean, we've been in a pandemic for almost a year. People are, are have lost their jobs. People are uns, you know, unsure about whether or not they have a place to live. People do not have food. So it's actually like, it's kind of such crap. Actually, I have another question, sorry, just about to kind of the numbers behind it. Like it's in New York City, especially, can you kind of just highlight quickly what the numbers are, how you guys fund the police now and kind of the discrepancies there and what this world of defunding the police would kind of look like? Yeah. So we have the largest police. We have the largest police force in the country. We got about a nine billion dollar budget. That's before overtime, which shatters records year after year after year. We have a highly militarized police department. The, the equipment that they have access to our police department is war type equipment. Our police department trains the armies of other countries, the military of other countries. So you, you, you kind of have to wonder like, what is that about? And why are we doing all of that, right? And what could we do with that money if we invested it in taking care of people? And how much need would there really be if people were being taken care of, right? So I'm just, I'm not suggesting, oh, we need no police, just get rid of all. I'm suggesting let's prioritize taking care of people's basic human needs first. And if we do that, let's see how much policing we actually need at the end of the day. And then we'll use that money to police, right? But why are we building this up in this way? And meanwhile, we're saying we don't have enough money to provide laptops for kids who aren't in school. We don't have enough money to provide housing for people that are on the street. We don't have enough money to pro provide food for all the people that need it, which is why there's all these mutual aid groups that are popping up. Oh, we don't have money for that, but guess what? The, the mayor just uh, put out something yesterday or the day before that he's increasing the police budget. Isn't he like literally getting sued right now? I mean, I can't with de Blasio, but I mean, I think that opens the door too into and backtracking into sort of the conversation of MLK Day and things that just went down. Would you just give us a little bit of like the lay of the land as to what just kind of happened on that day and how it connects here? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it was just a little bit more of fanning the flames, right, of what is already there in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement. And I think, you know, so that march, that protest on MLK Day, but also connected to the January 6th events. Two things happened for me on that day. One is I woke up with the light of hope around winning the Senate in Georgia and wanting to celebrate the, the efforts, the organizing efforts of Black women who have led down there and, and across this country in terms of protecting our, and preserving our democracy and the wins that they, that they brought to us that day. And then that was quickly overshadowed 
by the the sight of essentially white supremacists who are so hell bent on denying everybody the right to live in dignity and black and brown people in particular, the right to have access to participating in democracy fully, that they were willing to stage an insurrection against democracy and against this country. Part of what folks who have been protesting and marching for Black Lives Matter over the last year in particular, we couldn't see and watch what happened on January 6th. And we couldn't help but see that and not think about or compare it to our own experiences, right? We know that had that been a mob of angry Black people, most of them would have ended up dead. They would not have gotten as far as they did, and they would not have walked out and gone home to their loved ones that night. There is no way, no way. And so it, it is, I think it's important to recognize the further trauma that that inflicts on people to actually then have to watch that happen. And then to sort of try to do a, a march in protest and get beat and get incarcerated. It's like, wait, that's exactly why we're out here. And so it, it's just that cycle. And I, to me, it's just further evidence of like, we can't tinker around the edges and reform a system that's so deeply rooted in, in structural and systemic inequities, we actually have to fundamentally transform it. It's hard to even put into words because it just seems so obvious, but some people still don't get it. But to kind of like wrap this up too and like end on hopefully a, a hopeful note too, I mean, we have this new administration, we have a new Senate. Also like the silver lining, I think too, of like 2020 from COVID to police reform is the highlight it put on local government and the importance of that and the importance of like knowing your mayor and knowing how they manage their police force all of that is so important to keep your eye on at the end of the day i guess grateful that that woke a lot of people up to pay more attention and get more involved in their local government and communities like what can we hope to see moving forward i definitely have hope right i don't think i'd be in this race if i didn't i think that we're sort of at a at a crossroads of in in the history of our country i know for me it's one of the most kind it feels, feels like one of the most critical points of history in my life when you think about 2020 and all of the pandemics right the the covid-19 pandemic the social justice pandemic the economic pandemic and kind of the the op- opportunity that we have in 2021 to really sort of elect new leadership, which I think could easily sort of provide the mandate for the changes that we need to make. And I think that it's really important for us. And I think people are more willing than ever. I think we saw it in sort of the diverse coalition of people that were part of the uprisings and the movement over 2020. It was, it was different. It wasn't, it was a, it was a, a really different a coalition that reflected a broader sort of swath of, of, of the population. And I think that to me was inspiring and hopeful. And I think that we can actually make a decision that we're gonna make a moral and a political commitment to not go back to the conditions that allowed 2020 to be as awful as it was, right? And that that's gonna mean that, you know, it, we're, we're going to have to be willing to be uncomfortable in some ways in terms of making change and doing things we've never done before, but that that's a commitment that's worth making because when some of us do better, we all do better. And because we have to recognize that there is a collective interdependence that you know we actually do do better when we take care of each other. And if we, you know, if we take care of those among us who are, who are the most challenged or the most marginalized, those are actually often the people that are doing our food deliveries or driving our buses or, you know, cleaning our our subways. And so we benefit from them being able to do better and them being able to to thrive. And so I believe in that, but we shouldn't settle for anything other than like really getting to the heart of all of these things that that created the conditions for 2020 to be as bad as it was. There is so much to tackle and I'm excited, you know, you are prioritizing these things because it definitely needs to be done. But we appreciate having you on. Can you kind of plug us now of 
where people can find you and follow along with your your campaign and everything? Sure. I will say that, you know, so the campaign is is picking up this new kind of energy after the last filing on January 15th. We're a really people-powered grassroots movement. We have an average contribution rate of $50 for a a mayoral, a citywide mayoral race that's that's significant. And also 30% of our donors are unemployed. So we are really elevating and reaching people that have just not felt part of the process in the past. And that's something I'm really, really proud of. So if folks want to learn more about the campaign, they can go to our website at www.diane, D-I-A-N-N-E, there's two N's in my name, .nyc. Or if they want to follow along on social media, actually on all platforms, including TikTok that is run by my daughter. We love TikTok. Yes. I am at Diane, D-I-A-N-N-E, the number four NYC on all platforms. We talk about TikTok nonstop because we just feel like old grandmas at this point who like don't know how to work it and don't know how to make TikToks, but we are trying. So we need all the inspo we can get. We'll definitely give you a follow there because I cannot take responsibility for that. It's totally my daughter, my 20 old, 20 year old daughter who like does all of it. I just, she comes in and she's like, okay, this is what you're going to do. And she records it and she does it and she edits it and whatever else has to happen to get it up there. But you know, we've got over 20,000 followers. So I think we're all right. Amazing. Can we hire her? Are we actually, can we? She's a queen. <laughs> I'm sure she'd be down to have a conversation. Love it. Well, thank you so much for hopping on the show. We're so happy to have you and have all these conversations. And of course, for everyone listening, please follow us, follow Diane. We're excited. This year is going to be wild in terms of 2021 elections, and we don't want you to miss any of it. So stay tuned. Thank you so much for having me. Let's do top stories of the week starting with the never-ending saga of the trump impeachment (laughs) from 2019 to 2020 to now 2021 another impeachment we're dealing with here so trump has left office but his ghost still lingers in washington dc the u.s house of representatives delivered to the senate on monday a charge that former president donald trump incited insurrection in a speech to supporters before the deadly attack on the capitol setting in motion his second impeachment trial which like also i am kind of upset at the fact that they're i mean i haven't done a deep dive of what the charges are but i almost feel like his speech itself wasn't what it incited the insurrection it's the months leading to that after the election of him claiming voter fraud and just pissing off his base and getting them riled up to the point that they literally weeks ahead made shirts saying civil war on january 6th so this wasn't the speech that made this happen like this was planned in advance so i'm a little frustrated that like that's the charge i feel like it should be more comprehensive of his entire behavior since after the election so look it's it's kind of it's a low-hanging fruit right like it's the easy most recent thing and it's the most it's concrete. You can look at, it's a defined moment in time. And so it's easier to use evidence to create a scenario or to create a charge. Whereas like, yes, like if you look at like the last few months, even honestly, the last four years, like absolutely banana stuff. And like, it makes sense. It's like two plus two equals four, two plus two plus two plus two, et cetera. Like it built up, but like, it's harder to make those things stand up. Right. Well, as a refresher, 10 House Republicans joined Democrats in voting to impeach Trump on January 13th in the House. But now Senate Democrats will need the support of 17 Republicans in the Senate to convict him in the evenly divided chamber, which is a very steep climb given just the continued allegiance to Trump among the Republican Party and just the kind of stalemate that happens in our Senate of, you know, getting anyone to cross party lines. So... Yeah, Trump is, again, the only president to have been impeached um, by the House of Representatives twice. Um, And it's the first to face a trial after leaving power with the possibility of being disqualified from future future public office. So, again, it's this conversation of not allowing him to run for office again, holding him accountable and also holding like future presidents accountable that like you can't do this shit and get away with it. So uh, this trial in the Senate is expected to begin on February 9th. And then kind of another arm to the story is Senator Rand Paul, 
a staunch Trump ally, has pledged to force a vote on whether the Constitution allows the Senate to put a former president on trial, who is like now a private citizen. So again, Trump left office on January 20th after the inauguration, and nearly all Senate Republicans voted to endorse the idea that impeachment proceedings against the former President Donald Trump are unconstitutional. Senate Republicans are like, no, this isn't allowed. It's unconstitutional to impeach a president after they've left office. And so basically that this trial will still move forward, but it's just not looking good for the Democrats who need 17 Republicans to vote yes on impeachment. So it's just not looking good for that. And so Trump remains like a powerful force among the Republicans, as we know. So again, these representatives are looking to the future of their future races and knowing that the Trump base and Trump supporters are who will reelect them. I mean, it should be about their like moral compass, but at the end of the day, they want to keep their power. So they have to put their dignity and morals aside and go with what the, the Trump base wants if they want to continue their political career. So the Trump ghost... That's going to be a reoccurring theme is this Trump ghost and we'll, I'm sure, revisit her. Honestly, like the only ghost that I like is Casper. Like we're here for Casper, but like this Trump ghost is definitely a situation. I mean, I think like there's so much commentary and so much talk of like, obviously we got to this point with the Trump administration and that doesn't just go away. You know, the ghost doesn't just, the wounds don't just heal, but it's an interesting way to look at this whole concept of loyalty and whatnot right honestly another reason we just need term limits so that people don't govern in a way that they're only thinking about their interests of being reelected, but actually representing their constituents and what the people want but that's not how it rolls these days and honestly there was another story i was going to add in here but decided to nix it because i was like i don't want to keep revisiting the trump ghost but this story is actually a reminder that the Trump ghost is going to be alive and well because he just opened an office in Florida where he's going to be continuing to push his agenda in kind of a more, I hate to even use the word like advocacy or like activist because technically he's a political org and that's what you do in a political org, but that really just puts like, puts a bad name to activist advocacy, you know, I don't know if he deserves that. This is definitely not the perfect segue, but you know what? No, I'm going to play with this. There might not be like relief on Trump, but there is definitely COVID relief coming our way. Yes, let's hear it. Please give us some relief. We need it. So there we go. Basically the update here. So Democrats in the U.S. Senate are going to act alone to approve a fresh round of coronavirus stimulus if Republicans do not support the measure. So Majority Leader... New newbie in town, well, not really, it's been around for a while, but newbie in terms of majority leader right now, Chuck Schumer, go New York State, hey. So basically he said, and here come like the finger quotation marks because direct quote, we want to work with our Republican colleagues to advance this legislation in a bipartisan way, but the work must move forward, preferably with our Republican colleagues, but without them if we must. So he said that on the Senate floor. No, like he like he wasn't like lying on the floor, just like clarifying. He was like standing on the Senate floor. Just like it's a phrase. If you guys like need clarification on that, obviously. I have a stupid question. What does it mean by on the Senate floor? No, they're not literally on the floor. That's a good point, Sam. I'm glad you raised that. I'm glad you raised that. <laughs> it's fine. But now that we've clarified that, back to this coronavirus Michigas. So he's President Joe Biden, you know, new guy in town sort of, has made addressing the coronavirus pandemic a major focus of his first week in office. So busy, 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 busy beaver. So through that, he's calling on Congress to approve $1.9 trillion in spending. Like, wow, can you send that into my bank account? Thank you. Um, On top of roughly $4 trillion are authorized over the past year to address the heavy human and economic toll. So lots to unpack there. It's a lot of money, but it's a lot of crisis. Yeah, I mean, it goes to show that, again, the fight doesn't stop now that we have a new administration and a new Senate. Like, we still are having a blockage in the Senate for coronavirus relief out of all things, which is, like, seems like the most obvious necessary policy we need at this moment. And yet we are still struggling to work across the aisle. And 
you know, we hope to see that change maybe as we get farther away from the Trump presidency. But again, we can't take our foot off the gas now that, you know, the election's over. We still got to make sure these needs are met and that our representatives are doing the job. And they, frankly, still are being a little stubborn. But we will sort of continue the update from the Biden administration. So as much as obviously we want everyone to keep their foot on the gas, honestly, Biden administration really has put their foot on the gas. They slammed that foot on the gas, man. Like, did you see like the tire marks? Okay, so it's like a two-word scenario. And that two-word scenario is executive orders. So, okay, what is an executive order? Is it from a CEO, like an executive? What on earth is it? So I'll explain. So executive orders basically are produced by the president as the head of the executive branch. They're generally directed to and govern actions by government officials and agencies. So these executive orders can have the force of law. Yes, literally they can be like the source of policy, even if they do not follow the same procedure as bills passed by Congress. So during Trump's administration, he passed tons of executive orders. So as a result, Biden is going in and trying to reverse a lot of the damage done or the damage done from the liberal perspective. So keep that in mind, right? Everyone has different opinions as to whether his executive orders were good or bad and whatnot. So regardless, to sort of get the ball rolling on some of the policy reversals that he campaigned on, President Joe Biden has really been rolling through with these. So they're designed to represent quote-unquote, like, a U-turn from the Trump administration's policies on everything. So from COVID to climate change, especially climate change, to the border wall, all of these executive orders are looking to sort of walk back these policies and get them going immediately. So like we said, President Biden wasted no time implementing his agenda and turning the page like right after inauguration. Like, if you guys don't remember from our last episode, running through, like, the executive orders that were happening. Yeah, we were talking for a while, listing off all of those executive orders last week. I mean, he started literally like an hour after the inauguration. He went right to it. But there's an interesting conversation around executive orders because they're relatively new as far as how a president behaves and governs. Kind of in recent administrations, I would say in the last like 20 years, executive orders have become more prominent just because of like the divisiveness that has now ensued in like the last 20 years so because there's so much political divisiveness that means that less things can get passed in the congress and so therefore you know for a president to get his or her agenda (laughs) his um, agenda through he needs to just put all these executive orders into place because he knows he can't get it through the house and the senate so basically like this yo-yo style of government is not how things are supposed to work in the u.s and like big policy changes are supposed to move through congress and then to the president's desk and so the whole like nature of it really is supposed to be like molded by compromises that the house and the senate make and the amendments that healthy debate that needs to happen in those places to ultimately get policy through that is representative of everyone but we've kind of just like lost track of that again in like recent years because of that divisiveness so with congress absolutely stuck on key issues for the past like 15 20 years presidents have to settle into this pattern of like making executive policy on their own which has resulted in them doing and undoing each other's key issues so when trump came into office he undid a bunch of what obama did so the thing about executive orders are that they aren't as concrete as bills that go through the whole legislative process of going through the House and the Senate. So like, for example, the Affordable Care Act made it through the House and the Senate and ultimately signed by Obama. And that's why Trump wasn't able to reverse it. That's why it went through the courts, because it was just more concrete policy. Whereas again, executive orders can literally just by pen and paper be undone by a new president and a new administration. So it's kind of frustrating. I mean, it's exciting. All these things are being enacted. But at the same time, if we get maybe a Republican administration next, that can all be undone. I don't know if that's a healthy way to govern. But we have a ton of executive orders I think we should brief everybody on. You know, we mentioned what the first three days were going to look like last week. So we'll go into what's happened in recent days. 
so again, like we mentioned last week, things like joining the Paris Climate Accord to more aggressive policy on tackling the coronavirus pandemic, all these things were kind of big priorities for Biden in his first few days. But for the new ones that have come about in recent days, on the 22nd, economic executive order was passed which was actually a reversal of one of Trump's executive orders, which restores collective bargaining power and worker protections for federal workers and lays a foundation for a $15 minimum wage, which is a priority of the Biden administration that is in the works, that is being talked about, which I find pretty exciting. I think it's long overdue, but that's a big one. Yeah. And then there's also this one good old January 25th reversal. So this one really should probably reign in your memory as one of the many, many controversial moments of the Trump administration. But essentially, this executive order reverses the Trump administration's ban on transgender Americans joining the military. So huge win for LGBTQA plus community. So January 25th reinstates COVID-19 restrictions for individuals traveling to the United States from different places in Europe and South Africa. And then also on January 25th, another economic executive order. Looking to, of course, support American business and manufacturing. So this looks to really close some of those loopholes that exist that really allow companies and big corporations to say, see you later, USA. But it's like really interesting to see, given that Trump had run on a America first platform and spewed all this, you know, commentary and uh, noise about trying to prioritize American business. Meanwhile, this had gone the other way under his administration. So this is not a reversal, just to clarify what I'm saying, but it is a step towards sort of prioritizing American manufacturing and business and whatnot. We'll sort of see where it goes. So there's been tons more and we can share a link for you guys to do some research and maybe like see what other ones have been passed. And so on Tuesday, President Joe Biden planned to take executive action to scale back the U.S. government's use of private prisons and bolster anti-discrimination enforcement in the housing market. And so under these new policies, the Justice Department did not renew contracts with private prisons. And advocates have said privately operated prisons have contributed to an increase in incarceration rates and treated inmates poorly. So this is, you know, a little notch on the belt of some criminal justice reform that is much needed. So again, a lot of this is super exciting stuff. It's just like this debate on whether we want our presidents to be just pushing out tons and tons of executive orders. That's the debate here. But at the end of the day, like if our Congress isn't going to do it, who is? And I think there is a much bigger monster we need to slay in our Congress to make shit get done. And so... I think it's just been a teeter-totter of like people being pissed off at Obama for all these executive orders and then Trump did even more and now Biden's probably going to do even more and it's just like this back and forth that again ultimately comes back to the fact that our Congress is not functioning like just point blank period like they're not doing their job by any means and again it goes back to that conversation of senators, Congress members prioritizing re-election, prioritizing like who's going to fund their campaigns rather than what their constituents actually want and need, and therefore making them unable to compromise, which um, is literally the whole point of how our Congress needs to function. So, ah, man. I honestly feel like executive orders are the couple that keep breaking up and getting back together. Like, that's a whole concept. Literally. It's a toxic relationship. It's so toxic. It's literally Sammy and Ronnie. Sammy Sweetheart. That's actually now your new name on this show is Sammy Sweetheart from Jersey. I can't even do a Jersey accent. But those are our top stories of the week. Again, all very important stuff, even into this Biden administration. Important stuff to stay up to date on. So, Sammy, you want to do like our little spiel about how you should like follow us on Instagram and stuff? Here's what you're going to do. If you haven't done it already, like if you have, like, God bless you. Like, I don't know where to send a fruit basket to, but like if you DM us with proof that you have done all these things, you might just get a fruit basket. Wait, you know what? Actually, I will literally DoorDash you a coffee for a week straight. This is business days only. And 
if you show me proof that you have suggested this podcast to 10 of your friends how's that that's a nice little promo i am here for it i don't know if we use doordash on the east coast Okay, DoorDash, Uber Eats, whatever your preferred delivery services. Proof with purchase, if you can do all those things, boom, coffee coming your way. The first three people who show me evidence of this. I will do it. I will I will do that. If you send me, so DM us, little screenshots of a nice little note suggesting this cute little podcast with these two cute little girls talking about politics. Show us the coffee's yours for... A week straight business days only but again thank you guys for listening don't forget to subscribe rate review follow us on instagram dm us you know the drill but we'll be talking to you guys next wednesday Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.